It's time to pull your chair up to the table and join the Discover the Word group as they begin part two of a study of Paul's letter to the Galatians. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries with Mark DeHaan and Elisa Morgan and Bill Crowder and Daniel Ryan Day as your study partners. And they're taking six straight episodes of the podcast to focus together on this letter that Paul wrote to a group of churches in the region of Galatia. It was written to help them understand a key piece of the gospel of Jesus that is easy to misunderstand. In fact, it's something we tend to struggle with today as well. So week two of our study of Galatians called It's All About Grace begins next. And it is good to have you here. Hope you were able to be part of our last episode that kicked off this study. If not, you'll find that episode on our discovertheword.org website or wherever it is you get this podcast. And you can catch up by listening to part one. Because in a lot of ways, what we'll be doing in this episode and in successive episodes will be building on what we're discovering as we go. And I think you're going to be surprised at how much better your understanding of Galatians is when we come to the end of the six parts of this study. It'll fit together and you'll understand it in context. And it's possible that you'll live differently as a follower of Jesus because of what we've done together here. So Mart and Elisa and Bill and Daniel will review where we left off at the end of part one in just a moment because Paul identified some conflict as his reason for writing this letter. It's a conflict surrounding the foundation of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A conflict about the transition from it being all about the law to being all about grace. Okay, this is going to be kind of a no-brainer question, but I'm going somewhere with it, so bear with me. Which word more accurately describes our times? Cooperation or conflict? Conflict. Conflict, yeah. Yeah. And yet within conflict, there's a lot of cooperation. Yes, that's what I was thinking is I'm thinking of all the conflict, but there's usually groups that are cooperating on each side of whatever Mm. the conflict is. And Mm. so they almost go together. Yeah, against the other side. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You know, strength in numbers. So in one sense, conflict doesn't rise to a cultural level unless there's a cooperative group involved yeah. in that conflict. True. So it's really an odd kind of thing because mm-hmm. we think we prefer cooperation to conflict. And yet in some I cases... I prefer anything to conflict, <laughs> <laughs> just to be honest. Well stated. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, conflict doesn't happen without a measure of cooperation. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about cooperation, we've got to make sure we're rallying around the right things, that we're cooperating around the right ideas and goals and things like that. We're moving now into Galatians chapter 2. We finished Galatians chapter 1, and if you were to state the theme of Galatians and Galatians chapter 1 in one phrase, what would it be? It's all about grace. That's right. (laughs) Let's just take a real quick minute and be reminded of what we've seen so far in chapter 1. Well, Paul is writing to multiple churches in the region province of uh, Galatia. And he makes it very clear that he's writing with brothers and sisters in the body of Christ from his perspective. Who are cooperating with yeah, him and who are cooperating. saying that this is important. And mm-hmm. there's conflict going yeah. on in these churches, probably planted in his first missionary trip. And the conflict is about people adding to the gospel, mm-hmm. teachers of the law adding You have to keep all the law in addition to grace. Yeah, and I don't know that we've run into the false teachers concept yet, but that's one that shows up, I know, in chapter two and then throughout the rest of the book. So there's this group of teachers that are trying to lead them away or add to the gospel. And Paul's having to defend himself a lot. In fact, a lot of last week was talking about how he wants them to know, look, I'm an apostle, not because I chose to be, but because God showed up in my life and sent me to you with mm-hmm. a message that I didn't come up with, but that he gave me. Yeah, and on the other side of the aisle, we're calling them false teachers because Paul indicates they are. You can see why they were getting a lot of cooperation from Jewish people mm-hmm. who all their lives had seen their faith in God as expressed through a culture, mm-hmm. a culture of what you eat and you don't eat, 
laws about marriage, laws about children, about justice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and so it just made so much sense to them that they couldn't just discard and eject Mm -hmm. their whole culture in coming to Jesus. And the false prophets were in effect saying, yeah, don't do that. It's really important that you keep all that as you believe in Jesus. And so the Judaizers who no doubt believe they're serving God, they're trying to say, no, you know, we've got to hang on to Moses. Moses and Jesus together. And Paul's saying, it's all about grace. And within that, though, I don't know that we can even just say the Judaizers, because there's obviously something within the human being Mm-hmm. that is drawn to this type of teaching because a lot of the Galatians who are not steeped in Judaism are drawn to this. It's winsome to them for some reason. And Paul's having to, at one point last week, he said, I'm astonished that you're so quickly going after. Yeah. So it's got to be something that's compelling Attractive. to them. Hmm. Well, man-made religion is always rooted in human effort. That's what makes the gospel so radical. That's what makes Galatians so radical. That's what makes it's all about grace so radical. Because what grace is saying is it's not at all about human effort. Mm. (laughs) And everything in human religion is about what we do. And everything in grace is about what God does. And so this is the battle that Paul's engaged with. And we're going to see evidence, even in chapter 1, as we've rehearsed it, we've seen evidence of both cooperation and conflict. Now, as we come into chapter two, we're going to see cooperation and conflict again. And all of these things are going to start forming for us even more clearly as we move deeper into the letter. So let's look at verses one through five of Galatians two. Mart, would you read verses one and two and Daniel verses three and four? Okay, Paul writes, then 14 years later, I went back to Jerusalem again, this time with Barnabas, and Titus came along too. And I went there because God revealed to me that I should go. While I was there, I met privately with those considered to be leaders of the church and shared with them the message that I'd been preaching to the Gentiles. I wanted to make sure that we were in agreement for fear that all my efforts had been wasted and I was running the race for nothing. But even Titus, who was with me, was not compelled to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. But because of false believers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus so that they might enslave us. Okay, and Elisa, give us verse 5. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Okay, so we see the conflict in that latter part of it. But the first part of it is about cooperation, isn't it? And once again, as we saw last week, this... Galatians 1 and 2 text is really important for scholars trying to define Paul's timeline. Mm -hmm. So we saw him three years in the Arabian desert and then 15 days with Peter and then with James. And then he says what in verse 1? 14 years. He went up again to Jerusalem. He goes up with Barnabas and Titus. Barnabas was from the Jerusalem church and he had become a mentor to Paul. Mm -hmm. Titus was a Gentile convert who was a protege of Paul. So you have three generations of faith here. That's cooperation. But also he says that he comes to talk to the leaders of the church of Jerusalem in private to make sure that everybody's in agreement about the message, that he doesn't want his efforts to be wasted. If you remember when Randy Richards and Brandon O'Brien were here and we talked about misreading scripture with Western eyes, and they talked about shame-honor conflicts. And one of the things that lets you know it's a shame-honor contest is that it's done in public. Notice he says, we did this in private. Mm -hmm. He wasn't coming here to create conflict. He was coming here because he really wanted to make sure of things. And it shows him being submissive Mm -hmm. to the church leaders, far from being a maverick, far from being a loner. He really is part of a larger team. And these are church leaders in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. And they would have been the very people probably that the Judaizers are referencing in some of their arguments. Where does the conflict come in? Seems like it might be about circumcision. Yeah. And what he's saying is in Jerusalem, which was the heart of Judaism, the church leaders of the church in Jerusalem, in the shadow of Judaism, did not require Titus to be circumcised. Mm -hmm. 
the very thing that the Judaizers are demanding of you, the leaders of the church did not demand of Thomas. Well, and in verse 4, he's saying this matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks yeah. to spy on the freedom we have in Christ to make us slaves. So it's like even the leaders had been struggling. Right. Why was circumcision such a big issue? Circumcision was the mark of identification physically for a Jewish man. It was required by the law on the eighth day following birth, and it was a national thing that as part of the people of Israel, a man had to be circumcised. It was Mosaic law. It was ritual law. And what Paul's saying is they are coming in, the Judaizers, and they're demanding that Mosaic law be applied. And what I'm telling you is even in Jerusalem, the heartbeat of Judaism, when I brought Titus with me, they didn't demand that. Mm. Wouldn't it even be somewhat pre-Mosaic law because it would go all the way back to Abraham and they were trying to identify with Abraham Mm. as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it did go back to Abraham. But what Paul's saying is that's who Israel is, but that's not who we are. We've been set free. Don't go back into bondage. We have liberty in Christ. Don't be brought back under the law. That's why verse 5 is so important, because verse 5 says, that's why we're fighting this battle. We're not yielding, because we have liberty in Christ through the message of the gospel that we can't afford to lose. And just one little final thing on the timing of it. It's believed that this is before the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15, when the church finally made some hard and fast things about, we're not forcing the law. If this was after that council, Paul would just say, hey, listen, this is already done. This is in the council. The church is learning. (laughs) We forget that, don't we? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But what they're learning is this. It really is all about grace. And when someone tries to import Mosaic law on top of it, it is always going to rob us of the liberty that we've received in Christ. And we can't let that happen. A really important part of the conversation there to begin part two of our study of Galatians. And of course, Paul is not suggesting a lawless way of living where anything goes. And we're going to see later in the letter, it's not a grace that's without any responsibility. It's not a grace that's without a concern for others or a concern for honoring God, but in a different way from the law. It's all about grace. That's the theme of what Paul writes here. Well, let's push ahead in our study of Galatians 2 and talk about the one purpose that unites us all as Christians. And in Galatians chapter 2, we'll see the Apostle Paul call upon that shared mission to bring the early church together. Let's listen. Do you prefer team or group things to individual things, or do you like individual things better? I mean, like bridge or solitaire, tennis or basketball, you know, that kind of thing. I have to say depends because sometimes I enjoy just shooting basketball by myself. Sometimes I love playing soccer on a team. It just kind of depends on, I guess. Yeah, me too. Sometimes I love playing solitaire, same thing. Or, you know, golf is, love golf. Used to love tennis. I played team sports, so yeah. I like individual. I'll just say yeah. that. Yeah. I'm not as probably athletic as you guys are. And I enjoyed running, walking, biking, but usually myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think all of us at times prefer the safety of a team because we do believe there's strength in numbers. If I fall down, maybe somebody will pick me up, you know, and there's help to be had. And so working as a team has great benefits, but it's also hard. This personal risk. I recall times when I let a team down. Yeah. And then you feel worse. I wish mm-hmm. I was out of my own playing. But I'm connecting with what you're saying in a different way when you take it out of the athletic and into team as in working or serving or ministry. I really relate to that. It is really hard to be isolated and alone mm-hmm. as a speaker or a writer. I've longed to attach to a larger group for the covering and for the participation, for the multiple viewpoints that inform my gifting. So I'm really connecting Mm -hmm. with you now. So with a team or a group that coalesces, you have to coalesce around something. For instance, at our Daily Bread Ministries or here with Discover the Word, we coalesce around a vision and a mission. And our mission is to make the life-changing wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to all. That's a worthy mission. And 
with our friends here in Grand Rapids and others in offices around the world, this group has gathered around a mission that we agree is worthy of our best efforts. And um, Galatians chapter 2, Paul talks about a very similar thing. There's a shared mission that not only is he committed to, but the leadership in Jerusalem is committed to it as well. They share this common mission so that they work as a team, even though they're doing it very differently. And that's the interesting challenge of verses 6 through 10 of Galatians 2. And um, for this one today, we haven't done this in a while. Let's kind of read around the table, and I'll just kick it off with verse 6. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who were acknowledged pillars, recognized the grace that had been given to me, they gave to Barnabas and me the right hand of fellowship, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They asked only one thing, that we remember the poor, which actually I was eager to do. Okay. First of all, those who are of high reputation, he's referring back to where we were yesterday. James, the Lord's brother, Peter, the leadership of the Jerusalem church. And he very rightly says, God doesn't show that kind of partiality, but in human experience, we look at people that way. And these were the respected leaders. But he says, they didn't contribute anything to me. Now, what do you think he's getting at there? I wonder if he regrets writing that. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Why? Why would he regret it? He knew it? better than to say that. <laughs> I think perhaps what he's referring to is back to when he talked about, I didn't receive my gospel mm -hmm. from men, mm -hmm. but from the revelation of Christ in the wilderness. You're going to insist on putting it in context, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I like your answer better. <laughs> but I think what he's pointing out is, the gospel that I received in the wilderness is the same gospel that they received in Jerusalem. We're preaching the same message. Yeah, yeah my translation says, they added nothing to my message, which is really a powerful... That's clarifying, isn't it? Yeah, it, that's yeah. good. Yeah. And because what's happening is that the Judaizers are trying to add something to the gospel. And yeah. Paul's going, I have a pure gospel given to me by mm -hmm. Jesus. Nothing's been added to it. And since the flag the Judaizers have been waving is circumcision, mm -hmm. notice how he defines their separate audiences. He defines the Gentiles as? Uncircumcised. Uncircumcised. The Jews as? Circumcised. Circumcised. It was really symbolic of a patriarchal leadership in religion, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah it really was. And as Daniel reminded us yesterday, it traveled through Moses, but all the way back to Abraham. Yeah. And uh, it became kind of the national emblem of Judaism. Is that yeah. just bizarre? Yeah, it is. Okay. Well, and it's going to be really important when we get into three and four, because a lot of identity comes up in those chapters. And how are we identified with Abraham? And that was the physical way that they were showing that we're Abraham's kids. Yeah. And Paul's going to redefine that later. And that's the key, isn't it? It's a physical yeah. thing. That's and helpful. what Paul mm -hmm. has been called to is there's a spirituality that's to right. it. That's yeah. right. Mm -hmm. And he is trying to lift the Christ followers in Galatia above the physical to that higher spiritual yeah. level where we are supposed to be. Yeah. And what is so important in this is that as he's battling the Judaizers who are arguing for Gentile Christ followers to become circumcised, what he's saying is what they are losing sight of is the same message that I'm preaching to the uncircumcised is what Peter's preaching to the circumcised. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We have a shared mission a shared value. How would you describe that shared purpose of the two? The shared purpose of the two is no matter who the audience was, they were both hearing about the Christ. Okay. Relationship with God is not rooted in human effort and what we are able to do on our behalf. It is absolutely rooted in grace and what God has done for us. That is where relationship with God comes from. It's not about this physical act mm -hmm. of circumcision. And I would add for our context, it's not about the physical act of baptism hmm. huh. or the physical act of taking the Lord's Supper. 
Those are things we do identifying with the Christ, but that's not what makes us Mm. Christ followers. The physical act is a product, not a cause. The cause is grace, as we've seen over and over again. So when he says circumcised and uncircumcised, there's this echo of Romans 1 in there, isn't there? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Gentile. The same message, both audiences. So what he's saying, I think, is let's keep our eye on the ball here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the gospel. Yeah, and to that point, Paul's going to go on to say that this gospel of grace isn't just for the Jew and the Greek in this physical way, but it's also for male and female. Mm-hmm. That's really good, Yeah, Daniel. that is good. So they've got a shared message. They're both preaching the same Christ. They've got a shared mission to take that message to Jew and Gentile alike. What's really interesting is this little tag at the end. Read again verse 10, Daniel. (laughs) They asked only one thing, that we remember the poor, which was actually what I was eager to do. They have a shared value. Hmm. And the shared value is, as he would talk about in another letter in 2 Corinthians, Christ who was rich became poor for us to come to meet us at our moment of need. There are people all around us who have need. How can we show that same love to them? It could be confusing because it almost sounds like this is what we want you to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I think you already indicated it's not what is done for the poor Mm -hmm. as much as what is behind that Mm -hmm. that expression of care. Yeah, I think it's the heart, the caring heart that says, here is an opportunity Mm -hmm. (laughs) to inject Christ into a life that's struggling. It's changing our hearts. That's right. Do you think also, too, it might help that... It doesn't leave it in kind of a theological place either. Hmm. I mean, I know circumcision is physical, but the debate here is a theological debate. theoretical. Right, and theoretical. And there's almost this piece here. But they also wanted to remind me, it's not about us figuring out these right theologies. It's also about the physical living it out. The expression The expression of loving the poor. So this circumcision, that is what they're debating about putting aside but the everyday care for the poor is the expression that's ongoing from covenant to covenant. This is about God's heart. And his grace and the fact that this grace doesn't just leave us with no concern or anything Mm -hmm. goes. That's right. But it's a a new way of bringing us into a life of care and concern for one another. And I think if we could put it in the way that Philip Yancey put it when he was here with us, in this case, not only are we grace receivers, we're also grace dispensers. Mm -hmm. We become vehicles, not only for the message of grace, but for exhibits of grace as we share his love in the lives of those who are in need. Yeah, because at the end of the day, Christianity is more than just theology and the theoretical discussion of this idea versus that idea. Our faith is meant to be lived out. When we continue our study of Galatians called It's All About Grace, we're going to find that Paul talks about conflict. And, you know, I think most of us try to avoid conflict, if at all possible. But sometimes conflict isn't only necessary, it can also bring about positive change. And so in the next segment, we'll discover here in chapter 2 a time when the Apostle Paul had to confront a well-known leader in the early church, and you will know his name. So we'll pick this up after we take time for this message. Now, as you may know, Discover the Word is part of Our Daily Bread Ministries, publishers of the Our Daily Bread devotional used by millions around the world for their moments of quiet reflection on God and His Word. And we actually have a number of devotional resources that can be a real help in spending regular time with the Lord. And so during this six-part study of Galatians, I'm going to take some time in each episode to tell you about the wide range of devotional products that we have available. Now this time, in this episode, I'm going to focus on devotionals especially for women. In our next episode, ones for men, the following episode for couples and families and kids. And then we also have some special what we call reading plans that I'll tell you more about in part five of the series. And in the last episode, I'll tell you about a few other devotionals we have that many are finding to be very helpful. Okay, so really quickly, let me highlight one of our devotional series for women 
called God Hears Her. It is a devotional for women by women collected from Our Daily Bread to bring comfort and encouragement to your everyday life. Each meditation was written by a woman to speak to another woman's heart. The personal stories, scripture passages, and inspirational quotes lift you up and remind you that God is bigger than the trials that you're facing. 365 devotional articles to take you through an entire year. So just go to discovertheword.org and click store and then type in devotionals for women in the search bar. You'll see a lot of God Hears Her product there in the store at discovertheword.org. God Hears Her has become popular enough to have its own website and its own blog. It has an associated podcast on which Elisa is a co-host. But a good place to start is by checking out God Hears Her when you go to discovertheword.org and click store up at the top of the page and then type in devotionals for women in the search bar. You'll see it there in the store at discovertheword.org. And now let's get back to our study of Galatians. In what we've seen so far in this letter, we see that conflict is at the foundation of why this letter was written. And that conflict involves a perversion of the gospel that in reality we continue to struggle with to this day. It was a source of big-time confrontation involving two pillars of the early church. Paul refers to it in Galatians chapter 2, and so let's listen. Okay, the other day we were talking about conflict versus cooperation, and uh, we were talking about just not liking conflict. I was talking about that, yes. Yes. (laughs) I didn't want to single you out. I didn't want to create any conflict. What about confrontation? Yeah, what's the difference? Mm. If I had to define it, I would say conflict tends to be two-sided and confrontation tends to be more one-sided, where one person's going after another person. I don't like confrontation, even though I see the value in it, especially in the business world. No matter how prepared I am, no matter how much I know that what I'm saying is what's in the best interest of them in the business, I do not like the conversation still. But, you know, if you don't do it, or even the motivation to have confrontation arises from internal conflict. You know, I'm not comfortable with what's going on here. I'm in conflict with something. I need to address it. It's interesting that one leads to the other and then to more of the other. Right. Is there a way of uh, confronting that is gentle, that is thoughtful, that is kind? Sure. Absolutely. And I think a lot of times it comes down to at the beginning, am I having this conversation with this person because I want what's best for them and I want to shape this conversation so it's what's best for them? Or am I having this conversation because I'm annoyed at something they did and I want them to know that Mm -hmm. or that I'm bothered by them or something? Mm -hmm. I think one of the dirty little secrets of leadership is that you're put in a position of having to do confrontational things from time to time. And it really is hard to keep your own heart in check when those moments come. People who are in leadership aren't the only ones. Parents. Yeah. Teachers. Yep. Sometimes children. I mean, when you're in a situation where a a child has to confront their parents over something. Mm -hmm. I mean, none of these situations are comfortable. Even when we go at it with our best intents Mm -hmm. to try to help and to try to nurture and to try to really not just correct, but to protect. Mm -hmm. Because we see outcomes down the road if this behavior is left unchecked. Confrontation is hard. And sometimes it's necessary because of the impact that it'll have on an individual, the individual you have to confront. Sometimes it's hard because you're having to confront them about the influence that they can have on others. Even though we try to mitigate it or minimize it by doing it privately Mm -hmm. or doing it gently, you're saying there's still the potential for... There's the potential for misunderstanding. There's the potential for an angry reaction. For a power shift to happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of things about this that feed into awkwardness. And I want us to kind of have that discomfort very present with us as we read Galatians 2, verses 11 through 13. Elisa, can you read those? Of course. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, 
he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Hmm. Now, at least your translation says Cephas. Bill, you're talking about Peter. Yeah, Thank same you. person. Same person. Yeah. Why does he go back and forth in what he calls them throughout the letter? I don't know. One is a Greek name and one is an Aramaic name, but they're both speaking about the same person. Okay. In the previous little vignette, Paul travels to Jerusalem and he is in submission to the leadership of the church and everybody's in agreement on the message and everybody's in agreement on the mission and everybody's in agreement on the value of the poor. Now the geography has switched. Now Peter has come to Antioch mm-hmm. where it's a largely Gentile church. And in a largely Gentile context, when Peter shows up, when in Antioch, do as the Antiochans do. He's right there with them. So he was not kosher at that point. No, he wasn't being kosher until kosher people showed up. Mm. And then all of a sudden, his behavior changes. Now, do you see why Paul's upset about this? He's concerned about the implications, right? Peter's almost giving into the idea that we have to live like Jewish people according to our culture. The very things that he had not been requiring in Jerusalem, when Judaizers show up in Antioch, he sides with them. Hmm which could probably raise questions in the Gentiles. Yes. Right? Yes. And that's why Paul feels so strongly that he has to confront this with Peter. Read again verse 13. How did this affect Barnabas? The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And it's probably confused, or it's actually clarified this by seeing that the Judaizers, these Jewish men, had come up with the argument that if you're going to believe in Jesus, don't forget about Moses. Don't forget about the rules. That's right. Don't forget about our Jewishness. And that's the whole problem that they're battling with now in Galatia. And what Paul's doing is he's giving these folks in Galatia a test case. Here's how easy it is to stumble into this. The same Peter who endorsed the gospel that I was preaching, the same Peter who was preaching the same message to the circumcised that I was to the that same Peter. Look how easy it is to slide into this performance thing. And then Barnabas as yeah, well. Barnabas. So it wasn't just a matter of wrong behavior. Look at the influence that he was having on the other Jews. You almost hear the pain in Paul's voice. Even Barnabas, hmm. my mentor, the guy who had helped me when nobody would help me. How do you feel about the fact that Paul does this publicly? I don't think he does this publicly. I think when it well, says he ended up he, writing it about it, that's the larger point. I think that's the point where it becomes a shame honor contest. In an Eastern culture, things are rooted in the community. And if you wanted to discuss something privately for the sake of settling issues and so forth, you would do it privately. And the example of that is Nicodemus coming to mm-hmm. Jesus by night, right? He's not coming to challenge Jesus. He's not coming to confront Jesus. He's coming because he wants to know. Uh-huh. And so he comes privately. When the religious leaders in Jerusalem confront Jesus, it's always publicly because mm. they're trying to break down his credibility. And what I would say is right here, Paul is confronting Peter privately. He opposed him to his face because of his hypocrisy, because he's saying, listen, man, this is not what we're about. We're not about law. We're not about Moses. We're not about kosher. We're about grace. But he does include this in a letter that's going to be read. And maybe you're suggesting that by the time that happens, his confrontation of Peter done Mm -hmm. in private is Mm -hmm. resolved. Yeah. We believe all of this is before the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, Mm -hmm. when all these things got sorted out. But who has he been citing in this? He's been citing James and he's been citing Peter. Mm -hmm. And when the Jerusalem council comes, it's going to be Peter who argues for grace, Mm -hmm. not law. And it's going to be James who gives the verdict. What I want to believe is that by the time the letter is read around, Mm -hmm. Peter has already bought in. He's already agreed. He's saying, you know, Paul, I blew it. Right. Sounds really raw when we're reading it. Yeah. But I also hear some echoes in the Gospels. The disciples were willing to let these stories go out of them looking really foolish. I mean, there's some stories of Peter in the Gospels that are not flattering to him, but it's there. And you know what? We do it among ourselves. It's almost a privilege to be able to admit the stupid things we've done Mm -hmm. in the past now that we've bought in to something far better. Because it's all about grace. Yeah. And so our mistakes really lift up 
right. grace and but its power. But that's also what makes it so hard to confront someone else. Mm. <laughs> because we know we have our own backlog of mistakes. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But here, what's at risk is worth the difficulty that Paul's willing to wade into. Because what's at risk is how the people at Antioch first and then Galatia second understand the gospel. Mm. But I think it also speaks to that humility that all of us have. The best confrontation is always rooted in our understanding of where we fall short. It doesn't mean that we minimize what the other person has done, right? That would be unclear. They need to know, okay, what I did was wrong. And that needs to be very clear in our communication. That's a great point, Daniel. But the perspective from which we come, and oftentimes the best conversation happens when I go, Bill, look, I'm speaking to this from experience, man. I've made the same mistakes Mm -hmm. or I've made similar mistakes. And we've already seen Paul do that. In chapter one, he admits, I persecuted the church. I've done this. Yeah. So he's not holding himself up as the guy that has it all together. And then he opposes Peter. Mm. So in the same way, when we end up in these situations, we can look at one another and go, look, I've made some of these same mistakes or I've made similar mistakes. This is how God transformed my heart. I see this in what you're doing. It's got to change. God's grace is sufficient for you. His power is made perfect in this weakness that we're talking about. He loves you, but it has to change. And I think the more that is at stake, the more important it is that, as Paul would write later in Galatians, that when we correct a brother who's overtaken in a fault, that we do it with a spirit of gentleness, lest we ourselves also fall into the trap. Paul's trying to help Peter out of the trap. And that's grace. That's grace. Okay, all of us at this table are sports fans in one way or another. You, Elisa, are? Go Broncos. Go Broncos. (laughs) Michigan, right, Mark? Yeah, Michigan, Michigan State, Lions, Pistons. (laughs) Daniel? I grew up like in the Carolina Panthers, and I'm an App State Mountaineer fan. And when basketball season comes around, I live in North Carolina. That's all I'll say. I'm not getting in the middle of that one. <laughs> okay, so you're watching your team play, and it's a mm-hmm. crucial point in the game. And the referee calls a foul on your team. On the next play, the opposing team commits the same foul, and it doesn't get called. How do you feel? <laughs> I go at the TV. I just go at it. In fact, my dog runs to the other room. <laughs> I understand that a referee is just a person and makes oh. mistakes. Oh, you're so holy. Yeah. Or, or, Actually, or I'm lying on radio. I just bought my grandson a little present. It's one of those squeeze toys he used to get rid of stress. And it's shaped like a person. It has a referee jacket on it. <laughs> yeah, it has something to do with the score, too. I mean, if it's a close game at that point. It's a bigger issue. That's true. But I think there's something innately within us who says, if there's going to be rules, they need to be applied fairly. Mm -hmm. And when the rules aren't applied fairly, then all of a sudden, the game doesn't make sense anymore. I would suggest that something not dissimilar to that is in Paul's mind with the next section we see in Galatians 2. We saw yesterday that he was in confrontation mode with whom? With Peter. And what was going on that triggered that? He's accusing Peter or confronting Peter about being hypocritical. Mm-hmm. Two-faced. Two-faced. Yeah. 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 Being one way with the Gentile people, eating a meal with them. And then when the Judaizers, the teachers from Jerusalem come to the table, Peter acts differently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a difficult situation because When Paul keeps telling us that it's all about grace, he's not saying that there are no boundaries. But here what he's saying is, as we get into this, the Judaizers have grown up in a culture of rules. They're trying to apply rules to you that they couldn't even keep. Mm -hmm. How can that be fair? Now, that's a whole lot of front loading, but I want you to have that context in your mind as we read verses 14 through 19 of Galatians chapter 2. Daniel, you want to start? Sure. So this is Galatians chapter 2, verse 14. But when I saw that they were not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? You and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. 
And yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we've believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in him, not because we've obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right by God by obeying the law. Verse 17, but if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. It's pretty dense. It is very (laughs) dense. And we could spend a couple of weeks in this passage and not exhaust it. But I want you to keep that big idea in mind. He's saying to Peter, these are Gentiles. As followers of Jesus, we are people who have come to God by grace just like they have. We used to be under rules that we couldn't keep. If we couldn't keep those rules, why are you wanting to make them keep those rules? That's not consistent. What was he referring to that they couldn't keep? He was referring to the Mosaic law. And that's verse 19. Through the law, I died to the law. And what I think he's saying there is through my inability to keep the law, I realized that the law could never get me there. So I had to die to that. Would they have realized that, though? Would the Jewish people have realized that they couldn't keep the law, that they were being hypocritical? You know, I don't know. I think that's what Jesus came to say. (laughs) You know, in all of his teachings, that was his point, is you can't do it. He exposed the heart, didn't he? He did. He did. And, you know, we're a tiny bit beyond that here, but the same issue is still there. We try to save ourselves. I think that's a good point. This is written after Jesus, and after Jesus had actually been crucified, Mm -hmm. one of the reasons was he kept exposing the Jewish leaders for trying to act like they were keeping the law, when in fact he showed that from their heart they weren't living up to the spirit of the law at all. And isn't this just an ongoing decade-to-decade, century-to-century issue with us all? Yeah. Yeah, and it goes back to what we saw the other day. We have this ingrained brokenness in us that thinks that somehow relationship with God is something we have to work for and earn. Don't you think sometimes the way we do it is we say, well, I believe in the law, and if I believe in the law, it almost counts as keeping it. You know what I mean? There's some people Mm -hmm. who say, well, they don't even believe in the law. They're lawless. We at least believe in it, in spite of the fact that we don't live up to loving God with all of our hearts or loving our neighbors ourselves. Yeah. What's so interesting is that in this circumcised, uncircumcised, Jew, Gentile, law, grace, this whole argument, Peter who he confronted in the presence of all. so Right, because yesterday we talked about how Paul had talked to Peter in private when Peter came to Antioch. But now he's describing how he had a public conversation. A public confrontation, not just conversation, confrontation. (laughs) Confrontation. (laughs) And I wonder if as that confrontation is taking place, if Peter's mind doesn't go back to that seminal experience he had in Acts chapter 10. My where the sheet going came there. down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, three times the voice from heaven says, don't call common what I've cleansed. All of the animals in the sheet that came down to Peter when God says to him, rise and eat. And he says, I'm not going to eat that. I've been kosher my whole life. I'm not going to eat that. And God says, don't call it common. I've cleansed it. You're not under law anymore. <laughs> now it's all about grace. Hmm. Peter, don't you remember what happened to you? when you're at Simon the Tanner's house in Joppa. Mm -hmm. But we all have a tendency to drift. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and to your point, Mart, if that story happened, right, where Peter got up and ate, he can't go backwards Mm -hmm. and complete the law anymore. That ship has sailed because he's already eaten food now that's unclean. He's already interacted with the Gentiles. He's spent time in their homes eating with them. So from a Jewish perspective, he's already broken the law in every way. So I don't know that he would honestly be able to look and say that he could now keep the law after having broken it that many times already. And here's the thing that for all of us, I remember that verbiage in Acts 10 because the Lord so sweetly helped me see my own sin. He says, Peter, who are you to oppose me? And that's what we each do when we slip back that way and we forget, we add to grace. We oppose God's amazing gift. Mm. And I wonder if Paul is saying, Peter, the law demanded that you live perfectly. Mm. Yeah. I'm not asking that you live perfectly, but we must live consistently. Mm. 
Because look at what's at stake if we don't live consistently. Hmm. We couldn't keep the law. No matter how zealous I was, no matter how committed I was, no matter how sold out I was, I couldn't live it perfectly. Neither could you. Hmm. In saying that, Paul would be expressing the insight that he's gotten since believing in Christ. Exactly right. right. Yeah. Because before that, he kind of thought that he had kept it all. Yeah. Right? That's right. But since coming to Christ, who exposes our hearts, he realized otherwise. It is kind of radical. It's like we all need to step up with our own conscience before God and be able to evaluate what is pure grace and where are we tempted to add to it. Each one of us. Yeah. If even your leaders can do that, guys, everybody's got to pay attention to this. It's that important. Yeah, and along with that, I think there's a question here of what are you living for? Or who are you living for? This section ends with basically, am I going to live for the law no, I'm going to die to the law so that I might live to God. Mm. You know, earlier in our two weeks of Galatians so far, we talked about people pleasing and Paul saying, I'm not trying to please people. I'm not living for them. We see Peter basically struggling with that exact thing. Mm -hmm. I'm living for these people, for their approval, to fit in with the group that I used to identify with mm -hmm. fully. And yet Paul's point, it seems, is, no, we're dying to that because we have a new person to live for. It's not for ourselves, but to live for God. And because he's living for God, the message that he's been pounding through all of this so far is not only is he living for God, he's living with God and by God and through God's provision for him in the grace that took him from law and gave him a new message. Listening to the Discover the Word podcast with Marty Hahn, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day. And we are in Galatians chapter 2 in this episode. We're taking six episodes to work through the entire book of Galatians in a series titled, It's All About Grace. And this struggle that those early Galatian Christians were feeling, putting together their understanding of the law and fairness and grace, is one that we feel too, isn't it? And we will wrap up chapter 2 in just a moment. Now, during this series, I'm taking a little time at different spots along the way to tell you about some of the wide range of devotional material that Our Daily Bread Ministries has that will help you engage the scriptures and do that in a more consistent and meaningful way. Uh, we really do have a lot, as you'll discover over the course of this series. And so I'm kind of breaking it down into categories to help you find the fit that's right for you. And in this episode, I'm pointing you to the devotional material that is targeted to some of the special needs and interests of women. Let's see what we have available. A good place to start is by going to discovertheword.org and click store and then typing in devotionals for women in the search bar. You'll see a number of options that you'll want to explore. There is the God hears her, a God sees her, a God loves you line that each take you through a year. There's one called Moments with God for Women, and there's an edition of that for younger girls as well. There's a devotional called The Inspiring Grandmother, if that's the stage you're in. And there are a lot of devotionals for women in the store at discovertheword.org. Just type that in the search bar, Devotionals for Women, when you go to our website at discovertheword.org. The store dropdown is up at the top of the page. And now let's listen to how the group concludes their discussion of Galatians chapter 2. The work Jesus did on the cross is sufficient to cover all of our sins. But that doesn't stop people from trying to add on to God's grace with their own works and intentions. Some familiar verses I think will take on some new meaning in this next segment. Have you ever heard the expression, don't take it so personally? How many times? <laughs> For sure. What are the kind of things we take personally? Well, just about everything. <laughs> I think the way our kids act in public, yep. you know, and if it's oh, yeah. great, then we are awesome parents. And if it's not so great, then we're loser parents. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's tough. You hear this a lot in the business world. It's not personal. It's business. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Such a lie. Yeah. Because as soon as you look at someone as not a person anymore, but as what you can get out of them or whatever you're going to end up 
taking advantage of them or being taken advantage of. Yeah. And we use that a lot in the context of terminations. Yeah. You know, when we need to make a budget cut and so we need to let someone go. Downsizing. Downsize. Mm-hmm. But often when even their performance is lacking and we're afraid to say so, we say it's not personal, it's business. You know, so we can err in how we deliver that too. Yeah. But on the person on the receiving end, it's always personal. Yes. In fact, I remember an HR person telling me when he was training me and how to let people go when that was necessary. He said, keep it short. In fact, after the first 60 seconds, the person won't be able to hear anything you say. Mm -hmm. And I've thought about that so many times later, have a more in-depth conversation, but the emotions, because it is always personal. personal. Mm -hmm. That is really important Mm -hmm. because for us, it's always personal. If it's not personal, on the delivery end of it, it will make it that much more personal on the receiving end of it, I think. That's a good way of saying it. So taking things personally is important because it means we're absorbing them, we're taking them into ourselves, we're processing. In a sense, we're making them our own. And this conflict that we've been in in Galatians 1 and 2... is a matter of principle. It's a matter of principle. <laughs> but it's a matter of principle that Paul takes very personally. Because of the impact of grace on his own life, he can't look at this in a theoretical way. And yet he has to. But he can't. Well, I'm just saying, because it's <laughs> the whole principle of being rescued by grace is at once a personal thing that is rooted in principle. Or is it a principle that's rooted in personal mm-hmm. need? Mm-hmm. You know, Kind of both and, yeah. isn't it? But I think as he wraps up this part of his argument, and I will be very thrilled to hand the baton to Daniel next Monday as he leads us in chapter three. But as he wraps it up, I think he explains to us why he takes it so personally, why the gospel, why grace is so personal to him. I just think it's the most wonderful statement of what living in grace is all about. And this is why it matters so much to him. I'm going to read today. It says in verse 20 of Galatians 2, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. There's a whole lot of both and in that verse, isn't it? Mm, mm. I'm crucified, dead. Mm, But mm -hmm. I'm alive. Mm -hmm. But it's not me, it's Christ who lives in me. But I'm living in the flesh, but I'm living by faith. And it's all because of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Mm. Mark, how does it go in your translation? I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is Paul's gospel. And it has so completely captured his heart that I would suggest that in the midst of principle and in the midst of as Daniel reminded us earlier, theology, and in the midst of all of these right things, he has a personal stake in this. Mm-hmm. Because what he's saying is, listen, apart from grace, I'm not here. I'm not doing this. I'm not free. And notice verse 21. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Mine says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing, exclamation mark. That's really a good translation. You see why Paul's so passionate about this. Mm-hmm. He sees how it's impacted his life. And when he sees people trying to bring law back into the equation, what he sees them doing is nullifying the cross. So really to Paul, it's not about circumcision, that concept And so what he's defending, what he's opposing Peter for, what he's trying to point out in his own life when he was in Judaism and now come out of Judaism, is this idea that whenever we try to take it into our own hands, whenever we feel like Christ's sacrifice for us is not enough, but something else has to happen. In that moment, what we're saying is that Christ's sacrifice was not enough. I need Mm -hmm. something more. Mm-hmm. And that's why he's fighting so hard. It's against not that. about circumcision. It's about crucifixion. Yeah. And it's about Jesus putting a death to the law yeah. 
or fulfilling it, whichever way you want to see it. Or setting aside. As setting it aside. Setting it aside. Yeah. How would you express crucifixion as grace? How do those two come together? Well, you have to go all the way back to the beginning of Galatians, where we started on our first day. Verse 3 of Galatians 1, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, Hmm. that he might deliver us out of this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Where did grace and peace come from? They come from the one who gave himself up for us, Mm -hmm. and he did that on the cross. And that's why, again, even though baptism is a physical act that does not give us relationship with God, it identifies us with him because we are buried with him in baptism. Mm -hmm. The Lord's table, it's a physical act that we do not to obtain relationship with God, but to publicly identify with him. As you do this, you remember the Lord's death Mm -hmm. until he comes. In those identifiers, we are declaring that the same Christ whose grace had impacted the life of Paul, the life of others, the life of millions in our day to day, is the same Christ that we identify with because his grace has also come into our lives. Okay. The gracious part of his crucifixion is that it was revealing how much our God loves us. Yes. Right. And I think that that goes back to what Daniel was saying, Mart. I think that's a really good way to put it because the moment we think that we can add to that, we're saying the cross was not enough. Mm-hmm. But when we look at the cross... If we don't see anything else, we have to see how utterly incapable we were Mm -hmm. that it took this to rescue Mm us. And not just incapable of saving ourselves, but as we look forward to chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6, especially chapters 5 and 6, where we see that, okay, we've experienced this grace that affects the way we live. We're not just free to do whatever we want. Mm -hmm. And yet... There's grace buried right here in verse 20. It's no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And so not only did he rescue us and save us from our sin, but then he enters Mm -hmm. through the Holy Spirit. To do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And that's grace. And that's grace. By coming to dwell within us and empowering life, he does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Paul's laid it all out, the problem of trying to add to grace when it is only all about grace. In these last verses, it's kind of like a a personal creed. Paul makes it personal, this principle, Mm -hmm. this truth. Mm -hmm. He makes it personal. And really, he's going to go on from here and then further deal with the issue in the Galatian region. But here, it's almost like we can all decide, can we too make these verses personal for Mm -hmm. us? Our creedal recognition of that it's all about grace. Can each of us do that? I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives with me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. See how personal that feels? Wow. And that's why, you know, you hear Paul being collegial. We share together in these things. You hear Paul being confrontational, but here you hear his heart. (laughs) How could I ever turn away from the Christ who did this for me. In the end, that's why we talk about Jesus being our personal Savior. Because, yes, he's the Savior of the world. And, yes, he's the Savior of the church. And, yes, he's the Savior of all who come to him. And, yes, he is the Savior of. He's my personal Savior, too. And that doesn't need to be lost in the magnificence of the breadth of all that he came to do and provide in his grace. What a great way to end another hour of studying the Bible together here on Discover the Word. You're part of the group with Mark DeHaan, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day. And we're wrapping up our discussions about Galatians chapter 2. But we're going to be covering all six chapters of this letter in our series called It's All About Grace. And so in our next episode, Mart and Elisa and Bill and Daniel will move on to Galatians chapter 3. And Daniel will be leading us through that chapter. It's kind of a tough one, but you're going to learn a lot and be surprised at how much it speaks into where we are today. So be sure to meet us back here for the next episode of the Discover the Word podcast. 
Now, Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we walk with you through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Well, we're thankful for the privilege of having you together with us for this small group Bible study because it really does fit the mission of Discover the Word and Our Daily Bread Ministries, which is to make the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to people all around the world. And uh, we do that with the help of staff and volunteers in over 35 offices around the world, working together to distribute more than 60 million resources in 150 countries. And it's all made possible because friends like you freely give to support this ministry. Now, one person alone, of course, couldn't possibly cover the cost of our ministry efforts. But together, with each person giving what they can, we are able to reach even more people with the message of Jesus. And one of the most effective ways you can do that is by signing up to become one of our monthly partners. A monthly partner gives an automatic gift each month to discover the Word. And you can sign up to become a monthly partner by going to our website at discovertheword.org and clicking on the Donate button. That's at discovertheword.org. Well, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedding at Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.